It's good to see you here this morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture now and turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, and uh, we are currently in a series in 1 John entitled, That You May Know. And this morning we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and I'm actually going to read through to chapter 2, verse 2. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a Bible in one of the chairs around you or in the pew uh, that you're sitting in. And so we will be looking at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, uh, through to chapter 2, verse 2. I'll begin reading for us in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you. So that you may know, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, as I mentioned, we're in a series in 1 John entitled, That You May Know. And 1 John is a letter about Christian assurance. It's about obtaining assurance that we know God, that we belong to God, that He belongs to us, and that our destiny with Him is sure and certain, that we know that we have eternal life with God. You know, some religions wear a lack of assurance as a badge of honor. So, for example, as we think about Islam, if you were to ask a Muslim if they knew whether or not they would spend eternity in paradise with Allah, they would confess to you that they do not know whether or not they would spend eternity in paradise with Allah. That at the end of their life, they would come before the judgment seat of Allah, and Allah would weigh the good deeds and He would weigh the bad deeds, and if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds in their life, then maybe, perhaps, Allah would grant them entrance into paradise. But what we see here in 1 John is that Christianity actually offers an assurance that other world religions don't even propose to offer. Here in this letter, John states that his purpose for writing is that Christians would walk in assurance. He says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, God wants us to know, John here writing this letter in particular wants us to know, and God through the Apostle John wants us to know and be confident that we have a relationship with the Lord and that that relationship is certain and it is secure. You know, as we think about this idea, there are 
different reasons why Christians wrestle with assurance. Some wrestle with assurance because they lack confidence in the message of the gospel. They wonder, how is it that we can know the truth? And how can we know that the gospel itself is true? And so last week, as we looked at the opening verses of 1 John, we saw there that it's helpful for us to understand that the promise of the gospel comes to us with the authority of the apostles. That the promise of the gospel comes to us with the authority that Jesus granted the apostles as eyewitnesses of his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. And that the apostles then took that authority and with that authority they proclaimed the message that had been entrusted to them and they preserved that message for us in Holy Scripture. So we can be confident of the message that has been handed down to us. But others are uncertain, others uh, struggle with assurance because they are uncertain or they are confused about the message of the gospel. And this leads to doubt, this leads to uncertainty. And this is what seems to be happening here in this situation where John is writing these believers. There are a group of false teachers and they have shaken the assurance of John's readers. At one time, these false teachers were a part of the church, but they've separated themselves from the church, and they're teaching a different teaching, a different doctrine that has unsettled the confidence and the assurance of the believers that John is writing. As they are teaching this different doctrine, we read through 1 John, and we notice a number of themes that John emphasizes, and focusing on those themes that John emphasizes in his letter, it seems that these false teachers were teaching some form of what's known as an early Gnosticism. Now, there's a lot that we could say about Gnosticism, but I just want to make a a couple of brief points here that I think would be helpful for us in better understanding this letter. Gnosticism taught that salvation was obtained through knowledge. So actually the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. And so the Gnostics taught that one obtained salvation by um, achieving some superior, mysterious, spiritual knowledge. And sometimes this led to the idea that when one possessed this superior knowledge, it didn't matter whether or not they sinned because they were secure in this knowledge. Or they may claim that if you obtained this knowledge, that it was impossible for you to sin. And so you can imagine how this would be coming in, in conflict with the true gospel. And the teaching of Jesus Christ. You can imagine how this might unsettle the Christians that John is writing. And all of this talk about Gnosticism, you know, it may seem kind of strange and foreign to us, but actually it's very practical because at the heart of the matter, what John is dealing with here and what these Gnostics are trying to figure out and what they're teaching is what is sin and what is the relationship between the Christian and sin? That's at the heart of the matter. And my goodness, that is extremely practical. It opens up all kinds of questions for us. Why do we sin? Do Christians sin? Do some Christians sin and other Christians don't sin? 
If we're a Christian and we do sin, are we still Christians? If we can sin as Christians, how much? Is there a point of no return? You see, these are very practical concerns that, in fact, cause many Christians to struggle today with their assurance. And in order to gain assurance, one of the things that we must do as Christians is we must wrestle with this question of sin. What is it? And how do we relate to it as Christians? With that in mind, I believe that John teaches us here in this first chapter that Christians are free from the power of sin, the dominion of sin, and that Christians have been forgiven for the guilt of sin. In order to make this point, John presents us with a message in verse 5, and then you'll see this as we go along. John presents us with this message up front, and then he presents us with three distortions of that message, and he provides a corrective for each one of those distortions. So there's the message, there's three distortions of that message, and for each distortion of the message, there's a corrective. So first of all, let's consider the message. Look there in chapter 1, verse 5, and we read these words. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, notice just briefly here, once again, John actually appeals to his apostolic authority. He says there in verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Again, John is making this point that he had a unique relationship and had unique access to Jesus as an apostle. And therefore, he, along with the other apostles, possessed a unique authority to proclaim the message of Jesus. He says, we have heard from him, that is from Jesus, and proclaim to you. And what is this message that he proclaims? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we're told a number of times in the Old Testament that God is light. For example, in Psalm chapter 27 verse 1, we read, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And Jesus himself declares in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, what does it mean? So it's very clear from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the teachings of Jesus, from the teachings of John here, that God is light. But what does it mean that God is light? Well, in particular, John is emphasizing this idea that God is the essence of moral purity and absolute holiness. In fact, we see that that's what he's emphasizing here because he then goes on to say, and in him is no darkness at all. In fact, in the original language, it's, it's interesting because in the original language here, John uses a double negative. Now, in English, if we use a double negative, it actually results in a positive. So, if you were to say, I ain't got no money, that means you've got some money, right? Because the ain't cancels out the no money, all right? But in Greek, actually, they would use a double negative to emphasize a point. 
And so John says here, actually, literally it's translated, and in him is no darkness, no darkness at all. That means God is the complete absence of moral deviance and impurity. He is absolute light. He is absolute purity. He is absolute holiness. And what implications does this then have for us as Christians? Well, John wants us to, to, to say, or John wants to say here, be careful. Because you can get this sideways. In fact, that's what the Gnostics had done. That's what the false teachers had done. They had drawn wrong conclusions. And so now, John, having presented this message to us, he wants to right now to clarify the implications of this vital message that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So, in verse 6, now John presents us with the first distortion of this message. The first distortion of this message that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The first distortion is that we would live in sin. That we would live in sin. Look there in chapter 1, verse 6, and he writes these words. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, it seems that one of the claims of the false teachers is that one can have fellowship with God, and at the same time, they can have a life that is characterized by darkness and unrighteousness. In fact, that word there, to walk, communicates the idea of continual action, a way of life. If you think about someone walking down the street, it's a path that one has chosen. They are continually walking in darkness, perpetually walking in darkness. And so the Gnostics might be saying something like this. We possess this superior spiritual knowledge, and therefore we know that we have fellowship with God, and as a result, it doesn't matter how we live our lives. Our relationship with God is secure. Now, that's not too unlike what many people say today about their relationship with God. Right? Just remove the Gnosticism. We don't care about that. People say... I've had some religious experience with God, right? I've prayed a prayer. I was baptized in a church. I've attended religious services. Therefore, I know I have fellowship with God. And as a result, it doesn't matter how I live because God's got me covered. In many ways, this is the mantra of cultural Christianity. A Christianity that's not biblical, that's not faithful to the gospel, that's not genuine and sincere, but is more of just a reflection of Western and maybe even Southern culture. And John says, wait a minute. If that's what you believe, if that's what your assurance is based on, you don't understand the message. You don't understand the gospel and the implications of the gospel for your life. John goes on to say, if we say we have fellowship with him, verse 6, while we walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth. And so what's the correction? The correction to the first distortion is found in verse 7. The correction is this, that we would walk in the light. So first distortion is that we would live in sin. The correction is that we would walk in the light. Look there in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, we know that John got this message directly from the Lord Jesus. Because, as I stated last week, John also, John wrote a number of books in the New Testament, but one of the books he wrote was the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, John records Jesus' words in John chapter 8, verse 12, and this is what Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now what's the implication of that? Jesus goes on to say in the next sentence, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so when John encounters this, the Gnostics are saying, the false teachers are saying, we can walk in darkness and we can have fellowship with God who is light. John says right away, I know that's not true. Because Jesus said, he's the light of the world and whoever knows him will not walk in darkness. But they will walk in the light. And it makes sense, right? Because darkness cannot overcome the light when the two come in contact. You walk into a dark room and you flip the switch on, everywhere the light shines, the darkness has to scatter. And if we walk in the light, this is evidence that we, John says here, have fellowship with one another. That means that we're a part of the family of God. We are sons and daughters of God who is light. And we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Now let me just say, this does not mean that we then live in perfection. And this will be very clear as we go through the rest of the verses. But it does mean that there is, for the Christian, a definitive break a definitive change that takes place in their lives, that, that once they have encountered the Lord Jesus, who is light, they will never be the same. And as John is writing these Christians, this is John's hope. John's hope is not here. And understand this, because I think sometimes we can read these verses this way. John's hope is not to beat down the Christians he's writing. John's hope is not to say... Well, did you sin this last week? Obviously, you're not a Christian. John's whole desire in writing this letter is so that those who believe in Jesus would know that they have eternal life. John is not writing this with the hope that the Christians that he is writing would despair. John's hope is that as he writes these words... That the Christians who hear them would receive them and think to themselves, you know, as I look back over my life since I encountered the Lord Jesus, as I look back over the last year or the last five years or the last ten years, it's true. I'm not the same person. By the grace of God, 
I've been changed. And that reality would bring them assurance, confidence that they know Jesus. John's hope is that we would be able to say with John Newton, who is the great hymn writer and Christian pastor, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. End of quote. John's hope is that we could look at our own lives and say, yes, this is true of me by the grace of God. I have been changed by the light of Jesus Christ. I've been set free from the power and dominion of sin so that I walk now, not in perfection, but in a different way. I am walking in the light. The second distortion is this. The first distortion is to live in sin. The second distortion is this, to deny that you sin. To deny that you sin. Look there in verse 8 and we read these words. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here it seems that there were some who were claiming that they had reached a place where they no longer sin. So you notice there, it's in the present tense, if we say we have presently no sin. And it's possible that some of the false teachers were claiming that since they now possess this higher spiritual knowledge, that they had attained a position in their lives where they no longer sinned. Now, some people actually assume that this is what Christianity teaches. Some people assume that if you become a Christian, that then you will no longer sin, or you will no longer struggle with sin. I remember sharing the gospel with a guy uh, several years ago, and as I was talking with him, um, one of the things I just said in our conversation was that I sin regularly, and I have to ask Christ for forgiveness. And in making that statement, he was shocked. He actually kind of paused for a moment. He said, you mean you sin? And I said, well, of course, all the time. And you see, he had assumed that part of what it meant to be a Christian was to claim that you no longer sin, that you had reached a position where you would no longer sin. And actually, as I shared with him that that was not the case at all, I sensed that there was this relief in him that maybe had this, this sense of relief that, well, well, maybe I could be a Christian too. Perhaps some of you here this morning have been confused about that. There are others, though, who profess to be Christians and believe that, in fact, this is what the Bible teaches. That there is a state that a Christian can reach where they will no longer sin. And that this is really kind of the, the goal of the Christian life, to enter into a phase of the Christian life in which we are sinless, in which we no longer sin. Some people refer to it as entire sanctification. So there's no need for sanctification in our lives anymore. No need to be cleansed anymore because we've reached a state where we no longer sin. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great Baptist preacher and pastor in the late 
19th century, he had some dealings with folks who made this claim. And uh, he writes about it in his autobiography. I want to read this to you. He says, quote, I met in my pastorate, as I have often since, a number of persons who professed to be perfect and who said that they had lived so many months or years without sinning against God. One man who told me that he was perfect was humpbacked. And when I remarked that I thought if he were a perfect man, he ought to have a perfect body, he became so angry that I had to say to him, well, my friend, if you are perfect, there are a great many more as near perfection as you are. So, so Spurgeon here basically begins by kind of playing with his mind and kidding him a little bit. Spurgeon says, listen, if you're claiming perfection, then you should have a perfect body. And the guy doesn't receive this very well. He, he actually gets angry with Spurgeon and gets so angry that Spurgeon says to him, well, if you're really perfect, then why are you so angry with me right now? Spurgeon goes on to say, he said that he had not been angry for many years. I had brought him back to his old state of infirmity. And painful as it might have been for him, I have no doubt that it did him good to see himself as he really was. What Spurgeon is saying there is that this man had, as John says here in 1 John, he had deceived himself. And it was good for him to be brought back to the reality of who he truly was. And everyone who claims to have reached some state of sinless perfection, they deceived themselves. They've either excused their sin or redefined what sin really is, but they are not sinless, not this side of heaven. And listen, my friends, this isn't it just so helpful to see this taught so clearly in the Bible? Because otherwise, if you don't get this, if you don't grasp this concept, otherwise you will live in perpetual anxiety. Every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful action will be a cause for you to revisit again. Am I a Christian? Have I lost it all? John says, no, this 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 is not what the gospel teaches, that in this life we can reach a state of sinless perfection. In fact, if you believe that, you've deceived yourself. So what's the correction? The correction to this second distortion is to confess your sin, to confess your sin. Look there in chapter 1, verse 9, very next verse, he writes, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, for the Christian, this is the proper response to sin in your life. It's not to deny it. It's not to redefine it. It's not to ignore it. It's not to excuse it or cover it up. Rather, it is to acknowledge it and to confess it. And when we do, listen to the promise of the gospel. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, John is saying there's no reason to hide your sin. There's no reason to excuse your sin. Through genuine confession, we can know forgiveness full and complete. He will forgive us. He will wash us clean. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin. The third distortion is this. The first distortion of the message 
that God is light and in him is no darkness is that we walk in sin. The second is that we deny we have sin. The third distortion is this, that we deny that we have ever sinned. Look there in chapter 1 verse 10 and we read these words. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, we're depending here in large part on kind of the tenses of the verb, but many scholars have pointed out that it seems that a more extreme claim is being made now here in verse 10. In verse 8, John says, we say we have no sin, presently that is, we presently have no sin. But in verse 10, it seems that the claim intensifies if we say we have not sinned, so in the present or in the past, that we have never sinned. It seems that perhaps here what John is referring to is that someone would deny the reality of sin altogether in their lives. And and this seems so extreme that it's almost hard for us to imagine. I remember one of my professors in seminary saying, it's always stuck with me, he, he said that the doctrine of original sin... The, the, the truth that Christianity teaches that we are born into sin, the doctrine of original sin is the most easy doctrine in the Christian faith to empirically verify. You know what that means to empirically verify? It means to confirm by experience or by observation. And of course, we all know this to be true, right? Because you don't have to teach a child to be selfish, You don't have to teach a child to disobey. You don't have to teach a child to throw down in the floor and, you know, have a fit in anger. No, it all comes very, very naturally. Yet some still make this claim today. We think of secular humanists, for example, who deny sin as a reality. They would say that sin's not really a concrete reality in this world, but more of like a social construct that religious people invented. Notice John's response, though. Here in verse 10, his response is even more harsh. In verse 6, he said that if we say we walk in the light, but we, or that we know the light, but we walk in darkness, he says we lie. In verse 8, he says that if we say we presently don't have any sin in our lives, we deceive ourselves, so we're guilty of self-deception. But in verse 10, he says, if we say we have never sinned, we don't have any sin in our lives, we deny the reality of sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, we accuse God of being a liar. And we accuse him of being a liar because God has so evidently revealed the universal nature of sin to us, both in His Word and through our experience. And so what is the solution? What is the solution to this third distortion? The correction is this, to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus. Look there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, John writes these words. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, notice, this is is wonderful to see here in terms of how John draws this balance in these verses as he kind of goes back and forth. John says here in verse 
And in this verse that we write, it's verse 1. He says, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So, so some, some may claim, well, John, you've just said that sinless perfection in this life is an impossibility. It's impossible for one in this life to be completely void of sin. Therefore, you don't care about holiness. You don't care about whether one seeks to live a righteous life before God. John says, no, we write these things to you so that you won't sin, right? John's taking us back to chapter 1, verse 7. If you say you know God who is light, then you will walk in the light. But, he says, if you do sin, God has made a provision for you in Christ. In other words, even those who walk in the light sin, and they need a provision. John says that we have that provision in Jesus and therefore we should have hope because Jesus is our advocate. You see it there in chapter 2 verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, advocate, as many of you know, is a legal term. An advocate is one who speaks in defense of another. So if we were to imagine in our minds a courtroom, we are the defendant. We are the accused. And Jesus serves as our advocate. He's our defense attorney. And in terms of, in terms of him being the defense attorney and we are the defendant, Jesus has a very difficult case. In fact, it is an impossible case because we are guilty. In fact, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And the prosecutor, Satan, is appealing to the law and he is pointing out every situation in which we have ignored the law, violated the law, rebelliously, brazenly rejected the law. We are guilty. We're cooked. This, easy, this verdict will be easy and we are in trouble. And so what does Jesus do as our defense attorney? You know, some defense attorneys, they will, uh, they will do just about anything within the parameters of the law and even sometimes outside of the parameters of the law to make sure that their client is declared innocent, right? They'll twist and turn and maneuver and look for loopholes in the law and deceive and manipulate and so forth. Their goal is just to, to get their client off the hook. And so is that what Jesus does as our defense attorney? How does Jesus plead our case? Well, John says here that he is our advocate, but he is also Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a righteous advocate. He always does what is righteous. He always does what is just. So he will use no deception. No, Jesus comes into the courtroom as our advocate, and he announces to the court that we are guilty. Now, it's important that you get this point because this is oftentimes one of the reasons why people reject Jesus right up front. Because Jesus is so frank and honest about our sin. He's not hiding anything. He puts it all out on the table. 
all the damning evidence is presented to the court against us. And Jesus, he makes no denials. There's no cross-examination. He says, yes, it's true. Guilty on every account. And then Jesus reminds the judge of the sacrifice that he made for us at the cross. That's what... That's what John is referring to in verse 2 when he speaks of propitiation. Propitiation is a big word that means an atoning sacrifice to satisfy the wrath and justice of another. And at the cross, what happened was that Jesus died in the place of sinners. He paid our penalty. He took our judgment. He served our sentence. He endured the just wrath of the Father in our place for our sin. And so Jesus is our advocate, stands before the court, stands before the judge. He has one piece of evidence. Exhibit A, the cross where he died for our sins. And as he presents that one piece of evidence to the judge, to the court, he declares, I motion that this case be annulled. Dismissal of the court immediately. And God the Father happily and joyfully grants his request. We are forgiven in Jesus Christ, our advocate. And so, my friends, John is making the point again. We don't have to deny our sin. We don't have to redefine our sin. Because Jesus, our righteous advocate, has delivered us from the guilt of sin by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Let me ask you this, and this is what it really all boils down to. Do you know that you have eternal life. This last week, we did a funeral for Deborah Ells, longtime member here of our congregation at Crawford Avenue. Deborah was young, she was strong, she was active. She got sick several weeks ago. They discovered that she had an unusual uh, disease, I guess you would call it, where her immune system was attacking her body. Over the last several weeks, she declined and declined, and at one point they thought maybe she was coming back out of it, but then she passed away suddenly. No one anticipated that Deborah would pass away so soon. And let me ask you this question, the same question I asked as we did the funeral service this last week. If death were to surprise you, would you be ready? Would you know with a sense of confidence and assurance that you belong to God and that you possess eternal life with Him forever? John wants us to know that. That's the whole reason he's writing this letter. It's no, it's no like super state of spirituality to always be in this state of anxiety. Oh, do I know him or do I not know him? Am I really his or am I not his? Will I have eternal life or not have eternal life? John doesn't want you to endure that agony. John is writing so that you would be confident and assured that you know him and that if you die, you will be with him forever. And this is the message 
that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And if we rightly understand that message, we will not live in darkness, nor will we deny our sin, nor will we deny that we have ever sinned, but instead we will acknowledge our sin for what it is. We will confess it before God, trusting in Jesus Christ, our advocate, who laid down His life for the forgiveness of our sins. And we will walk in the light as God is in the light. For those who do so, they will know the blessing and the gift of Christian assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You that Jesus came, that we might have life, that we might have joy, that we might have peace, that we might have rest and security, Lord, in You and in Your promises and in Your Word. And Father, I pray right now that You would work by Your Spirit in each one of our hearts. And Father, I pray that even as we've looked at Your Word this morning, that You would settle in each one of our hearts this matter. Whether or not we know You, whether or not we have life in You. And Father, I pray that the anxieties and fears that may plague so many people who are here this morning, Lord, I pray that they would be put aside. And Father, I pray that there would be a new sense of confidence and assurance and peace that is found in the gospel. Father, we thank You that although we are sinners and deserve Your judgment, that Christ came so that we might know the forgiveness of sins and so that our lives might not only be free from the guilt of sin, but free from the power of sin so that we might walk in newness of life. We might walk in the light. Father, give us grace to do so. Lord, take your word now and apply it to our lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.